Titus reflects on the beauty of how we as men and, uh, and women are to relate in the context of the church. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And we celebrate you today, ladies. We're thankful for the gift that you are in the life of our church. And may God increase the influence of the godly women in the life of our church as you seek to shape faith in the context of your own homes and faith in the context of our church family in the context of this home. Thank you so much for all you do. We love you. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, as we reflect on this text together, we've been in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 now for several months, and Paul is now concluding the argument that he's been making here in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 here at the end of Romans chapter 11. You'll note in your worship guide that the intended purpose of this sermon was to be Romans chapter 9, verse, uh, verses, excuse me, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, down to the, verse 32. But I'm going to make you a deal this morning. It's Mother's Day, so I'm just going to preach a few verses short, and we're going to do verses, uh, chapter 11, verse 25 through verse 27. But don't get excited and thinking you're going to get out of here any bit earlier today, Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, somebody's got to help explain to us what Paul means, all Israel will be saved. And if I were to take you today down to New Orleans Seminary and bring you to the library, we could spend the next hundred years just in the section that deals with this text, all of Israel being saved. And I'm going to try to take a hundred years worth of reading and uh, bring it down for you and give it to you in a hundred minutes worth of preaching this morning. I'm joking. It's Mother's Day. You're still going to get the restaurant. Don't worry. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Paul has been making an argument, if you remember, here in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, that indeed God is one who remains faithful to his word. God is not failing in his promises regarding ancient Israel. The problem with ancient Israel and her lack of faith during Paul's day is not a fault of God. God has done all. Paul reminds us in chapter 10, God has done all that is necessary for people to come to faith in Christ by sending his son, Jesus Christ, and by commissioning us as his followers to go into the world and preach the gospel of Christ. And yet there remains in the heart and the mind of the Jews that attend the church here in Rome a question regarding God's faithfulness. And here, as Paul begins to conclude that which he started in Romans chapter 9, he wants to remind his readers in Rome, and by extension, you and me, that God's desire from the beginning was that all might be saved. We go back to the very beginning of Romans chapter 1. And this summation is no surprise to you, for you remember the words of Scripture, for the gospel is the power of God to whom? You guys can repeat it. 
to all who believe. Who is the believe? Who, who are the all that believe? The Jew and and the Gentile, right? We're not surprised that Paul is making a concluding argument here in Romans chapter eleven that indeed the intended focus of this gospel narrative is not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. It is extended to all persons. And to make his case in this text this morning, Paul calls into the courtroom, if you will, two exhibits. He's going to give us two exhibits this morning for us to see this truth from this text that God's desire has always been for all people to come to faith in Christ. First exhibit, Paul mentions a partial hardening, a partial hardening. Listen to the text of Scripture as Paul begins here in verse number 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Now the question is, who is the you to whom Paul is speaking? To whom is Paul speaking here in verses 25, 26, and 27. Up until this point, at least in the last portion of Romans chapter 11, the you, go with me back to chapter 11, verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Paul is continuing a reflection, particularly toward the Gentiles. He's spoken primarily in chapters 9 and 10 and down into 11 to the Jews, here in the conclusion to the Gentiles, but then also to all, to all Gentiles and Jews, those who by faith have trusted in the Lord. But here specifically in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. He's speaking directly to the Gentiles. You might remember from our text over the course of the last two weeks, Paul has been indeed concerned that there might be a sense of arrogance that rises up in the heart of the Gentiles as they see a number of Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ and a lack of Jews who are coming to faith in Christ. Paul is saying, I don't want you to think yourself wise in your own eyes. You might remember Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear Yahweh, fear God. This is the point that Paul has been driving home. We rejoice in our salvation, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. This is what Paul is continuing here at the beginning of verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own eyes, I want you to understand this musterion, this mystery. I want you to grasp it. Now, what in the world, pray tell what does Paul mean by mystery? How is the Apostle Paul using this idea of mystery in the context of Romans, but not only in Romans, also in the context of the rest of the canon of Scripture? Here in Romans, I want to make just a brief argument that Paul is using this understanding of mystery, much like what he does, for example, in Ephesians, we'll look to in just a few moments, as a reflection of this idea that from the very beginning of time, God has had a passion, God's intended purpose concerning the gospel was that both Jews and Gentiles might come into a right relationship with God. This was a mystery. There's been this, if you will, progressive unfolding of this truth. We might also say there's been this progressive 
understanding of this truth, not that this truth was completely, totally hidden in the context of the Old Testament. For sure, Paul, when he goes on his missionary journeys in Acts, what text is he preaching? He's preaching the Old Testament, right? He's revealing Christ from the Old Testament. So it's not that Christ was completely, totally hidden in the Old Testament, that you couldn't get it, so he had to wait until the New Testament to understand who Christ is. Paul here in this text is not speaking of something that is one, unknown, or unknowable. He is speaking about something that is known. He is also speaking of something that is Christocentric, Christo-focused. He has a focus on Christ when he mentions this understanding of mystery, not only here in Romans. He mentions it one other time in Romans at the very end, in Romans chapter 16, but also in Paul's other writings concerning mystery. Now, look with me just quickly to two examples, one in the book of Ephesians and the other in the book of Colossians. Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and listen how Paul uses this idea of mystery. In fact, Paul uses this idea of mystery throughout chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, I'll begin reading here in verse 6. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. What is this mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the, notice his language closely, we're going to come back to this a little later, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same soma, same body. So make sure you understand Gentiles are members of this same body. They belong to this same body as the Jews do and are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to what? Preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. For Paul, what is this mystery? This is a mystery that is known. This is a mystery that is Christo-focused, Christocentric. This is a mystery that includes the Gentiles in this idea of conversion or in this understanding of the body of Christ or in this understanding of there being a people of God. Now look with me real quickly to how Paul uses this also in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul is speaking of his ministry. He says these words. Let's start in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Now keep in mind as we make our way through this text of scripture, and particularly as we come down to this understanding of, in this way all of Israel will be saved, what is this mystery to which Paul is seeking to give a sense of clarity for those in the church at Rome? The mystery is that God in his wisdom has chosen to include all people in this gospel narrative. The mystery is that God has chosen to include Gentiles as being his people. Israel didn't always understand that. We've noted that in the past. That's reflected in the story of Jonah. Jonah stands as an example of the nation of Israel. Does Jonah get God's desire for other peoples to know God? No, Jonah doesn't get it, and he rejects it, just as the nation of Israel rejected it. Yet, even though Israel has rejected that truth from time to time, does not mean that this is not a present reality from the very beginning and the very heart of God concerning salvation. So Paul is wanting the Gentiles to understand. He's wanting the church here in Rome to understand this mystery in a more full and complete way. What is that mystery? That God has indeed included the Gentiles as being part of the same body or the same people of God. Now notice how Paul makes this point. Exhibit number one. There is a, notice what he says, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's partial. It's not all. Clearly, not all of Israel is hardened against God. How do we know that all of Israel isn't hardened against God? Paul himself is a Jew, right? Is he a believer in Christ? Absolutely. How do we know that there's not a full hardening against the Jews in terms of the context of Paul's writing? Because there are Jewish believers that are in the context of this church to which he's writing. It is a partial hardening. We also see that in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. You might remember as Paul began his narrative here in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he made a very important distinction. And this is a distinction to which I have brought us back on a number of occasions. Listen to this distinction again in chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So make sure you understand it right. I can be an Israelite by birth. I can be a Jew by birth. But if I reject God's message of Christ, if I reject God's only means of covenant faithfulness in the person of Jesus, I do not belong to Israel. So Paul is clear from the very beginning in the context of 19 and 11 that there is distinction between the real Israel and those who claim to be the real Israel. So there's a partial hardening, clearly not against all of the nation of Israel, but also look what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 16. 
but they, who is they? Israel. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Clearly not all of the Jews in the context of Paul's day have indeed believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a partial hardening, not all. And notice what Paul is also arguing as it relates to this partial hardening. It is not an indefinite hardening. It is not an indefinite hardening against the nation of Israel. Notice what he says beginning in verse chapter 11. Let's look at just a few texts of scripture here in chapter 11 real quick. 11, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, verse 23, and verse 24. 11, 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Notice again in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will their full inclusion mean? It's not final. There is indeed a sense of hope concerning the salvation of these Gentile Jewish believers. Look at verse 14. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Look again at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Look at verse 23 and then again in verse 24. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Remember, Paul is proving the case that indeed God's desire is for all, both Jew and Gentile, to know who Christ is, to live in righteousness. What is this mystery? This mystery is that truth revealed. How do we know that this is indeed the case? Paul argues, first of all, from this idea of this partial hardening that has come upon the nation of Israel. But how has Paul been using this partial hardening? Remember, this is a summation of what Paul has already argued in totality in Romans chapter 9, Paul is already, chapter 11. Paul has already, already reminded us that this partial hardening of Israel has indeed direct implications for those of us who are not Israel. It's a means of salvation for us. It's the way in which God has used this and, and salvation history to bring about my salvation and your salvation. There's a partial hardening of Israel. That hardening is, is not final. That hardening is indeed partial. Notice exhibit two. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
Now, we should not be surprised that Paul would argue first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. Remember, he's already on several occasions used this same paradigm. For the gospel is a power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Paul is reflecting on salvation history. The gospel has been given, first of all, to the, to the Jews, but there's a problem. There's a partial hardening that has taken place. That partial hardening has been a means, notice what he says here, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the part of the mystery that should be no surprise. This is the mystery that God has indeed revealed from the very beginning, even through his prophets. You might remember our time together in the book of, of Isaiah. Isaiah begins here in chapter 2 with this beautiful reflection of the power of the gospel. Listen to what Isaiah says concerning this gospel message in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And notice what verse 2 says, and all the nations shall flow to it. Friends, rejoice today that your salvation, my salvation, our being grafted in, our coming into faith is a indication of God's faithfulness to his word. God has promised that indeed he is going to bring to faith in Christ both Jews and Gentiles. Our faith, your faith, my faith this morning, if by faith you have trusted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is affirmation for your heart and my heart as God's faithfulness to his word. Friend, have you ever doubted the word of God? Have you ever been in, ex in a situation where you found it hard to believe? You know what Paul is saying? If you've ever doubted God, if you've ever struggled with faith, look back to that moment where God changed your life and there, friends, you can see the height of God's expression of love communicated to you. We might say it this way, friend. If God were to never do a single thing for you except provide you salvation, that in and of itself is the greatest expression of God's love towards you, not your health, not your wealth, not your position at work, not the person to whom you're married, or the number of children that God might or might not give you. Salvation is God's greatest affirmation of his promise through his word to you and to me. See, friends, God has not failed in his word. 
God is indeed still being faithful to his covenantal promises to bring about salvation both among the Jews and among the Gentiles. Isaiah reminds us of this beautiful display of this gospel narrative. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 8, also mention the beauty of these nations coming to Yahweh himself. Jesus himself oftentimes noted in regard to some of his parables, the inclusion of the Gentiles and the rejection of the Jews. Look with me real quickly at two parables, two stories that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, first in Luke chapter 13. Here in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 23, Luke 13, beginning in verse 23. Jesus is continuing his journey, verse 23, and some said to him, and some said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught us in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all of you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Look again in Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14 beginning in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the same time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, I lost my place. Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have brought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please, ha please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I gave, to, I gave to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, servant said Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus himself, in both of these parables, gives affirmation to what Paul is indeed communicating here in this text of Scripture 
concerning this display that God has always intended both Jews and Gentiles to be part of this one people of God. The Jews have partially rejected, and because of their rejection, the Gentiles are indeed coming in. Now, Paul, in verses 26 and 27, gives us three summaries. He gives us three summations, if you will, concerning this truth that he has just revealed. Part one, number one. And thus, notice your text of scripture, and in this way. And in this way. Paul uses an adverb here from the Greek New Testament called autos, or hutos. He's used this uh, some now 10 times in the context of the book of Romans. We could spend the next 10 minutes and track down each one of them. If you're interested in knowing what those verses are, please come see me afterwards and I'll be glad to walk through with you what those verses are. You might be saying, why in the world are you telling me this? Because what Paul is about to say right here in this verse, and in this way, in some ways bears large meaning for how we're going to understand this next phrase, all of Israel shall be saved. In every example of this adverb, of hutas, in the book of Romans, in every single example of hutas in the book of Romans, not one of them means then or when. Not one example yields itself to a temporal understanding. We understand temporal in this way. If you want to eat groceries tonight, if you want to eat a meal tonight, you might tell somebody this story. Yesterday, my mom went to the grocery store. She brought groceries, came home, put them in the refrigerator, and then will cook those groceries tonight. There's a temporal progression. I even tried to note it for you by steps on the stage. I started over there, and I ended over here. Did you catch it? There's a progression. I want to make sure you understand that in the context of Romans, Paul never uses this adverb as a progression in a temporal sense. It never means this or when. Paul always uses hutas in the book of Romans and the way in which he has done it here in verse 26 as a concluding statement, as a statement of conclusion. And in this way, as the ESV rightly translates this one adverb from the Greek New Testament. So what I am denying up front in the context of this passage of Scripture, make sure we're understanding with me, 
Paul is not using verse 26 and this argument to say this must happen, this must happen, and once all of that happens, then all of these Jews are going to come to faith in Christ. That is not how Paul uses hutas in the context of the book of Romans. Does everybody understand what I'm saying here? So then what in the world does he mean? As Paul begins here in verse 26, he is giving us a statement of conclusion. And in this way, he is concluding what he's just communicated in verses 25 and 26. What Paul has just communicated here in verses 25 and 26 is in large measure a very brief summation of the truth that he has communicated in chapter 11, verse 11, down through verse 24. That there is a partial hardening. You remember the story or the illustration of the olive tree? That some of the branches of that olive tree have what? Fallen off. Others have been grafted back in. Paul is taking that idea and drawing a conclusion I conclude in this way, we might translate this adverb. What's the next summation he gives us? All of Israel. All of Israel. What in the world does Paul mean by all of Israel? There are six historical understandings that you can find in any popular level literature on this conversation, five of which are predominant in theological, historical reflections of this statement of all of Israel will be saved. Let me just quickly give you these six ways in which you can understand this phrase. Number one, all Israelites from every age. Paul could be concluding in this text of Scripture and in this way, all of Israel, by all of Israel, he means all Israelites from every age. Number two, all the elect of Israel from all time. We know even going through this passage of Scripture, Paul has used this language of of elect to define that group of people inside Israel who truly expresses faith. So Paul could be making a statement here, all of Israel will be saved as a reflection of all the elect of Israel of all time. Thirdly, Paul could be using this as a reflection that all the Israelites, all Jews, who are alive at the end of the age when Jesus comes will indeed in some way be grafted in. So if you're a Jew, and you're alive at the time in which Jesus Christ returns, what Paul is saying here is, you will indeed for sure be saved. Number four, Israel as a whole, Israel as a whole, alive at the end of time, Israel as a whole, alive at the end of time when Jesus Christ comes again, but not including every Israelite. We know already from the text of Scripture that when Paul uses Israel, he doesn't always mean all of Israel, right? So he could be meaning a significant number of Jewish people who were alive 
at the end of the age will indeed come to faith in Christ. Number five, a large number of Israelites at the end of the age. And lastly, Israel redefined to include all Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. To help us, and what this text of Scripture might be meaning concerning all of Israel, I want to give you three questions upon which we reflect to help us come to some type of conclusion in terms of what does Paul mean by all of Israel. Who is all of Israel? Who is all of Israel? When will salvation occur? Who is Israel? When will, this, when will this salvation that is mentioned in the context of this passage of Scripture occur? And lastly, how will that salvation be accomplished? How will that salvation be accomplished? I would like to make an argument for you this morning with a great deal of humility and understanding that there are very wise, competent Bible readers and lovers, many of whom are seated in the context of this room this morning, and many who have written uh, from a scholarly level who indeed disagree on this understanding. I'd like to make an argument for you this morning from the text of Scripture itself that what Paul is doing here in this reference of all of Israel is including all those who by faith have trusted in the person of Jesus Christ. So what Paul here is saying is a summation of what he's just given us in verses 25 and 26, a larger summation of what he's already given us in chapter 11, verse 11 through verse 24, a summation of what he's already given us in all of chapters 9 and 10. That there is indeed only one people of God. There aren't multiple different peoples of God. To do so, I'd like to start first from the text of Scripture in chapter 11, verses 11 through 26, and just briefly mention to you the illustration that Paul has used here to communicate a number of truths. Remember, back in chapter 11, verses 11 through 24, Paul has used the illustration of the olive tree. The olive tree. How many trunks does that olive tree have? One. How many branches attached to that one trunk does that olive tree have? Many. And Paul's already used the illustration. Some of those branches that were originally attached to that olive tree are unbelieving Jews, and guess what has happened to them? They've been broken off. They have fallen away. Some of those branches that are attached to that olive tree are Gentiles. How do they get attached to that olive tree? They heard the gospel, chapter 10. They called on the name of the Lord. They were grafted into that olive tree. They're not natural. You might remember verses 23 and 24. Paul talked about these natural branches and these unnaturals. The Gentiles are not natural branches. They're unnatural. Yet... Both the natural branches and the 
unnatural branches are attached to one trunk, to one tree. Who is that tree? The very people of God. Who are the people of God? Chapter 10, the people of God are the ones who hear the word of God and respond responsibly to that gospel message by faith. So notice what Paul is saying here in summation. There's been a hardening of the Jews. God used that hardening of some of these Jews in his sovereignty to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles, verse 25. This is in line with this gospel message that tells us that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And Paul is concluding in light of this truth that God has in, uh, in this mystery that God has brought together these two different people, these two different ethnicities, Gentiles and Jews. He's brought them into one people and he understands them to be Israel. Well, that shouldn't be too hard for us to grasp or understand. Notice what Paul does in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, I want to begin reading in verse 11 down through verse 16. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through verse 16. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Who are those who are circumcised? Who are those who are not circumcised? Gentiles. Man, you guys are really sharp this morning. The middle of verse 13. But they desire to have you circumcised. The Jews desire to have the Gentiles circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And notice how he depicts this new creation in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the what? Israel of God. Who is the Israel of God, friends? The circumcised and the uncircumcised who by faith have trusted in God's one and only covenant mediator, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is all of Israel? All of Israel is you and me. Listen to what Augustine had to say about this interpretation. Not all the Jews were blind. Some of them recognized Christ. But the fullness of the Gentiles comes in among those who have been called according to the plan, and there arises a, quote, truer Israel of God, the elect from both the Jews and the Gentiles. Listen to John Calvin. I extend the word Israel to include all the people of God, the salvation of the whole Israel of God, 
which must be drawn from both Jews and Gentiles, will thus be completed, and yet in such a way that the Jews, at the firstborn, as the firstborn in the family of God, may obtain the first place. That's no surprise. Romans 1, the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I have thought that this interpretation is more suitable because Paul here wanted to point to the consummation of the kingdom of Christ, which is by no means confined to the Jews, but includes the whole world. In the same way, in Galatians 6.16, he calls the church, which was composed equally of Jews and Gentiles, the Israel of God. But make sure you understand this understanding that all of Israel includes Jews and Gentiles does not fundamentally change the very nature of what Paul means when he uses this term Israel. For who has the true Israel always been? Ethnic Israel or believing Israel? Believing Israel. When will the salvation occur for the people of God? Notice what he says, and in this way, all of Israel will be saved. Notice the future tense of this passage of Scripture. Paul uses a word here, sozo, for salvation, the primary word for salvation throughout the text of Scripture. In seven of the eight occurrences of this one word in the book of Romans, they are all placed in the future tense as this text of Scripture is. They will be saved. For Paul, We've already noted this truth. Salvation is a process that has a truth of a past reality, a present reality, and a future reality. You know what Paul is saying in the context of this passage of Scripture, friends? The gospel is continuing to do its work. God's word is continuing to fulfill its primary focus of bringing people to faith in Christ. And what's Paul's proof for this understanding of mystery? What's Paul's proof for this understanding of the gospel being this gospel narrative that pulls together all people in one place, thereby giving them one name, the Israel of God? What is Paul's proof that God will continue to use his word to bring about the salvation of all people? Paul does now what he has always done for us in the book of Romans. He goes back to the Old Testament. Paul reaches back in his back pocket, if you will, and he pulls out a text of scripture from Isaiah 59. We read Isaiah 59 this morning in the context of our worship guides, and then I also appreciate, Randy, that you jump to Jeremiah 31. For there seems to be an indication that indeed what Paul is fleshing out here in Romans chapter 11, verses 25, 26, and 27 is also in line with the fulfillment of what God has promised he will do in this understanding of new covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31. What is that promise? That he would indeed bring all people to faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, boys and girls. So listen at Paul's proof. The deliverer 
will come from Zion. Now take a moment, look in your little, if you want to use your worship guide or you want to go in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 59 and look at verse 20 with me. You can use your worship guide or your Bible, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20. Understand that much of the, many of the New Testament writers are drawing, when they reflect on scripture, they're drawing from two sources. They're drawing, first of all, from the Masoretic text. That's what you and I normally understand as the Hebrew Bible, a collection of the books of Bible that, that you and I have in our Bibles now in the Old Testament that are written primarily in Hebrew, some of those in Aramaic. So Paul will oftentimes quote from the Hebrew scriptures. Or in theological circles, we'll say the Masoretic text. But there's another collection of texts from which Paul will oftentimes draw. And that collection of texts is what we know call the Septuagint. The Septuagint was, or is, the Greek translation of the Masoretic text. Everybody understand? So what Paul is doing, oftentimes, but for sure in the context of this passage of Scripture, is compiling both of these texts to give us this text of Scripture in Romans. He's pulling a little bit from the Septuagint. He's pulling a little bit from the Masoretic text. So notice, hold in your hands your worship guide and look at Isaiah 59, verse 20, and hold it closely to what Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Notice what he says. The deliverer will come from Zion. Now notice in your worship guide or in your Bible, Isaiah 59, 20. Do you see a difference? What's the difference? Ah, maybe some of you never understood. One little word, a preposition, can have so much meaning. Paul changes the preposition from the Masoretic text from the Hebrew, when he recounts it here in, in, in Romans chapter 11, he changes it from the deliverer will, will come to Zion to the deliverer will come from Zion. Why? As a fulfillment of the beauty of this gospel narrative. In some ways, Paul is reminding us through the recounting of this text that is, it is indeed true, this truth that we've seen repeated over and over. The gospel is first to the Jews and secondly to the Gentiles. Notice the missionary focus with which Paul writes in this text. The Redeemer, the Deliverer will come from Zion. Paul's missionary focus in this passage of Scripture reminds us of what he's already been communicating to show us that God is indeed faithful to his word. It has always been the plan of God to provide salvation to the entire world. Praise the Lord. This delivering message is going to come from Zion. It came to Zion in the first advent, and through the gospel message comes from Zion. You and I are evidence of this from Zion aspect, of this missionary passion of Yahweh. The deliverer will come from Zion. Now he quotes next verbatim from the Masoretic text. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. You see the twin themes? 
a focus on the Gentiles, and a focus of renewal, of revision among the nation of Israel. The word of God is, in, is accomplishing that which God set it out to do, to bring about the salvation of Jews and of Gentiles. Then verse 27, and this will be my covenant with them. And notice in your worship guides in Isaiah 59, verse 21, and as for me, this is my covenant with them. And then notice what your worship guide states. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And then we took from Jeremiah chapter 31, as a verse that has twin meaning with what is ultimately being spoken of here in Isaiah chapter 59. But notice back in your Bibles in Romans chapter 11, look at verse 27, the very end. And this will be my covenant with them. We saw that from Isaiah. Now notice what Paul says here at the end. When I take away their sins. Do you see that phrase in Isaiah 59 anywhere? Do you see that in Jeremiah chapter 31? And what is Paul doing? He's given us another concluding statement of Scripture. What is Isaiah ultimately speaking of as he recounts, my spirit is upon you, my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart from you? What is Isaiah ultimately saying? He's given us a depiction of what happens when God cleanses our lives when he saves us. What happens when God saves us, friends? He takes away their sins. Friends, this is what salvation is. This is what God has done for us. God has not promised us and sending forth his son, Jesus Christ, that if we would believe in him, he has not promised us a physician so that we might have good health. He's not produced for us a psychologist so that we might think correctly. No, he has produced for us a redeemer that takes those of us whose lives are completely, totally separated from God because of our sin, because of our hatred for God, because of our disobedience toward God, and Jesus takes that sin upon him, and in taking that sin upon him, he cleanses us, he renews us, he saves us. This, my friends, is the intended purpose of the gospel narrative and sending forth Jesus Christ. Has your life been redeemed today from this Redeemer who comes from Zion? Can it be said of your life this morning that He has taken away your sins. And just notice briefly, for Isaiah, who was the one who would accomplish these tasks? Yahweh. For Paul, who is the one that will accomplish this task? Jesus. You know what Paul is saying to us this morning, friends? Jesus is God. 
Have you looked upon the beauty of this Savior? Have you trusted in him? Has your life been redeemed by him? Like this Savior, do you too desire the salvation of the nations? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glory of of your word, for the testimony of scripture that you've given to us. We pray, Lord, as we reflect on this truth, that this text might compel our hearts to deepen our gratitude and love and affection for what you, God, have accomplished on our behalf. We rejoice today knowing that those of us who have trusted in Christ are indeed part of this Israel, this people of God. And we rejoice, Lord, that you continue to bring people to faith in Christ. You continue to bring people into this olive tree. Would you take a few moments this morning where you're seated and reflect and respond to the preaching of God's word? Have you, are you part of God's olive tree? Have you trusted in Christ today? See, friend, the beauty of this text of Scripture reminds us that although our lives were once characterized by that which Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1 as sinners, Sinners that have the wrath of God communicated against us. Sinners who suppress the truth. That none of us stands too far outside of God's reach whereby He, through the gospel, cannot redeem your life. If you've never trusted in Christ today, would you believe in Jesus? Would you trust in him as God's only sole covenant mediator? The one who alone can rightly transform our lives. And then for those of us who are believers today, as Paul in this text reminds us of this missionary zeal of God, Do you share in that passion for seeing people come to know who God is? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. If you're here today, you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'll be glad to share with you. But friend, please don't feel like you have to come talk to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you this morning who know the gospel and believe the gospel and will be glad to share with you the gospel. Secondly, if Pastor Travis or I can pray with you, we would delight in shepherding your heart. The truths of this text might be indeed evident in your life. Salvation might indeed grip your heart. and Your life might be characterized as a passion for people. Or thirdly, maybe God has placed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. 
this would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, might our response be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you